Hello, Catching Up With Cub listeners. Just before we get into today's show, I have a very small favour to ask. If you love listening to Catching Up With Cub, we would love it if you left us a review. And you know, five stars would be amazing too. Your review helps other listeners find our podcast and it lets us know what you like to listen to. We read every single review, so thank you in advance. Now let's get to the show. Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up with Cub member Dan Matchen of Lion Eyes Advertising Agency. Dan is an expert in behavioral science, which is the real reason people make decisions, particularly for business owners buying decisions. And that's exactly what we discussed in this conversation. Dan explained how the human brain works, how we make decisions, and then rationalize actions towards those decisions. He gave us a blueprint for how we can figure out how to harness that knowledge for our own businesses. Hope you enjoy the show. So what is behavioral science? How would you describe it? Behavioral science is basically the use of psychology to study um, economic outcomes. So what is the actual decision-making that goes around why people choose between one product or service and another? Sorry, I didn't realize you were going to go straight. Yeah, I, I thought you were going to say morning and all the rest. No, no, we do that. So I'm <laughs> straight. Yeah. No, sure. nah, you know the part where I'm like, hello, ledgers, welcome to today's yeah. show. When you leave, we'll record, All right, <laughs> we'll record right. that. But no, no, we like jump straight in, get everyone hooked on something. But I mean, <clears throat> like all great admin, you are British. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you're a behavioral science uh, expert, um, as well as being a loved cub member. And behavioral science is one of those things that's, it's kind of like the secret tool. It's kind of like what the big ad agencies know and use in order to control the minds of the world. And um, and so I guess as business owners, like lots of our listeners are, um, with aspiring and, and established, knowing a little something, something about some behavioral science probably pretty useful, particularly in these days and age. So why don't you give us a bit of a brief on, on behavioral science and yeah. we'll go from there. Yeah, I think um, it's a really important question. And I, th- and I think it's, um, it's easy to see behavioral science as kind of mustache-stroking villains in their room trying to think about how they can influence people. Uh, it can also be used for fantastic good in society as well. So I think, first of all, um, it was based on the, the work of Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman. In essence, they looked at how people make decisions and what they found was that often people can make quite irrational decisions and that there are a number of what they call behavioral biases that are relevant in any particular context, which will influence how people make a decision or not. So for example, at the moment, there's a a bias called status quo bias, which is if times are turbulent in the sort of external world, people tend to stick with what they know. And that's really interesting for us because we've seen lots of stuff related to home go through the roof. So a lot of my friends are talking about their deep concern at the amount of online shopping they've started doing or just the amount of home renovations and so on. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, with behavioral science, um, it can be a force for good. Uh, there's lots of brilliant case studies like VW Fund Theory where they actually looked at how can we get people to do better things that we want them to do. The 
insight straight up was if you make something more fun, it makes it more appealing and therefore that behavior is more likely to be um, prioritized. So they actually um, in, in the Netherlands did a, a speed camera lottery where they turned it from a fine into a reward. So if you went past the speed camera and you were doing exactly the speed limit, you went into a prize draw to win money from the people that got fined. So they turned the behavior around by making it more fun. Equally, um, they were trying to get people to climb stairs more so they were healthier. Uh, so they turned a set of stairs into a piano. And, and you know, this sort of usage of stairs right next to an escalator went up a thousand percent. So that's kind of, um, I guess, the essence of behavioral science. It's the context in which you frame a behavior and it's understanding particular behavioral biases that people might have in any one place of time. And I, and I think, you know, importantly for members, um, as soon as someone says behavioral economics, it's kind of Wizard of Oz stuff. It's behind a curtain. No one really gets it. I think the primary thing that, that is really important to understand is that if you can get someone to do something um, through a process called cognitive alignment, they actually align their thoughts and feelings with what they've just done. So we all do it when we buy things that perhaps we shouldn't. Uh, and a new iPhone, whatever, I often get in trouble for buying tech from my wife. And of course, then I'll start rationalizing the decision by saying, well, it will give us fantastic photos of, the, of our young children. So, you know, things like that is quite, it's very interesting to us from the point of view of being an agency that we focus on behavior first, because that actually speaks to a wide cross-section of attitude in society that can really maximize your audience opportunity. And so the benefit of someone like myself and our listeners knowing about behavioral science and, and perhaps some of the tips and tricks and, and lessons that you're going to share with us today is what? Yeah, so it's, it's exactly that. I think, I think um, it's expanding your audience opportunity. So interestingly, um, you know, Mikey, our CEO, is also a cub member that you've spoken to before, is a fanatical guitar player. And he went along to a Fender world record attempt where they had all these guitarists turn up. And if you looked at that in classic advertising terms, it's probably sort of a midlife crisis bloke would be your target audience. So, you know, it's kind of, it's fascinating to go, if you were writing that brief and you said it's someone that's bought a motorbike, they fancy, you know, picking up guitar as well. Um, that might be the way that you target your business. Now, what's fascinating, of course, is in the real world, segmentation like that is kind of nonsense. So when Mikey turned up, there were lots of rock and roll individuals that were, were male, female, and ranged from age five, who had been taught to play guitar by their parents since they were born, to kind of 60, 70-year-olds who are still rocking in the free world. So it's, it's really fascinating how um, you know, a brand like Fender or even Harley-Davidson can appeal to kind of a sort of a rebel rock and roll attitude that can span myriad age groups. So, so and you that, that's the benefit. It's about you speak to a much greater audience. So you're tapping in to a, an emotional kind of attitude of a client. So, so rather than being like, ah, demographics, young men between the age of 20, 30, which basically eliminates that, that have this attitude, you're basically eliminating all the other people that have that attitude that aren't within that demographic. So basically you're saying, now we focus on the behavior and by understanding that behavior, we're then better able to influence uh, or showcase potential clients um, 
why they should use this product or service. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's really around how can we best frame that behavior um, in order to get people to make, a, you know, to make a choice for us versus another product or service. And, and then secondly, it really is about expanding out that opportunity. Um, and it's, you know, it's fascinating that um, a lot of the sort of characterizations that we make in terms of category choices or, um, well, this is for women or this is for men or this is for certain age groups. Yes, we can have a bullseye, but we can also commercially achieve much greater success if we can tap a shared attitude. And so how did you get into, how did you become a, a, a behavioral science expert? So, I mean, uh, you're British, so you got that going for yourself in advertising. That's that's a win. But yeah. and, and tell us about you. Where you're from? How'd you get? To, why'd you come to Australia? Did you study, or how did you become an expert? Yes. Yeah, so so my um my surname's Machen, and they used to call me Magpie Machen because I was always attracted to the bright, new, shiny thing. And interestingly, doing advertising over a period of time, I found that you know, there were certain science practices, particularly behavioral sciences like neuroscience, psychology, um, looking at kind of different behavioral biases that are an incredible shortcut to success uh, in terms of communication. And so it was really around what can help make my job easier, but also sort of personal fascination with esoteric bits and pieces. And I, and I think particularly what took me down this path and, um, you know, I spoke on it can and did a, a TEDx talk on as well, was the response of the human brain to modern technology. Because just in my own sort of um, personal behaviours, I was noticing an incredible level of distraction. And, and my thought in terms of communication was that the quality of attention that we can get from people these days is so undermined because our smartphones are usually in our hands almost 24-7. So that's kind of where it started out with neuroscience. And we actually did some live tests on what happens in people's brains as you um, communicate with them, but they might also be using their mobile phone and or have a laptop on their lap whilst an advert is on TV, for example. So it started out there, and I think it grew into behavioral economics because that became a really fun way to frame different challenges. And so your TEDx talk, what was the title of it so people could look it up? If you look up um, Dan Machen, um, Dan Machen, TEDx Manchester, um, you can find it. And so uh, what, what made you move to Australia? Um, so uh, like most people in a happy marriage, my wife told me that we were going to move to Australia and I, I wholeheartedly agreed with that plan. So, so yeah, I mean, the main, the main driver for us was the hope to um, have kids uh, you know, running around in Australia's green grass and under blue skies. And um, yeah, thankfully we're now blessed with, with two of them. So Australia has been really kind to us in that, in that sense, but. Yeah. And your wife's British as well? She's Australian. So okay. yeah, she's from, she's from out West. So, so she knew it was better here. Yeah, exactly. So she was telling me this for about 20 years. And uh, thankfully I finally, I finally caved in and uh, decided I'd, you know, been there, done that in terms of London. So came over and yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. And obviously now you're, um, uh, business partners with Mikey Taylor, who's who's uh, obviously a member as well and been on the podcast in uh, uh, Lion Eyes, which is uh, an advertising agency, you'd call it? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're an independent um, creative and uh, media agency. So I think, I think very much, um, you know, very much for me, the key was how do we take these different disciplines and create a better offering for businesses that really understands 
how to make communications work harder. Uh, you know, and there are sort of three key elements to that, really. Well, let's go through them. You know, I think as as we as I evolved in terms of twenty years under the belt doing this job, it's it's very interesting, and certainly what drew me to advertising initially was creativity. So, you know, I think anyone anyone who's anyone thinks that the, the cornerstone of good marketing and advertising is just do great creative work and get it out there in the world. And, and I think the um, you know the the essence of what we've learned over time is actually it's a combination of those things, which is really powerful in terms of elevating client outcomes. And that's really what Lionize is all about. So that's why we brought creativity and media together. And the key elements of that are obviously about creating mental availability. So, um, you know, there's a, a, a big body of study by Ehrenberg Bass Institute, who are kind of Australian gurus in what actually drives brand value. And um, they talk about mental availability, which is being able to being able to be brought to mind in most buying buying occasions versus your competition. So that's really thinking about strong associations. Great example, Vegemite. You know, Vegemite used to be goes on toast. It's now Vegemite goes on toast. It can go with healthy stuff like Avos, and it's Australian as is the latest kind of positioning for that brand. So, by mental availability means. If I think motorcycle, Harley. Absolutely. Like it's Absolutely. whatever comes first. Yeah, it's whatever. Uh, phone, iPhone, Apple. Absolutely. And it's really- Business networking, come. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you've done there. Yeah. I like what you've done. Absolutely, yeah, completely. And I think, um, you know, that's one part of the puzzle. And I, and I think actually, and this, this is really important for founders and people in agencies, there's a lot of ego around, it's a bit like a graduate entering the job market where you go, I can't wait for the world to get a load of me. And then you go out into the world and it's really busy and everyone's, you know, got a finite amount of uh, attention without distraction to give to you. And it's the same with communications. You know, it's like it's partially how distinctive is your message. So is it going to be brought to mind? You know, you say motorbikes, you say Harley, you say phones, you say iPhone. Is it going to be brought to mind at the top of the tree? And that really is about do you have the right volume of share of voice? Um you know, so really, are you investing enough? And this is this is a key element of what we look at as well, the marriage of creativity with media. So we can scientifically look at what your relative share of voice is in your category and then determine how much kind of fuel you need to put in the plane to really get it to take off at the right sort of velocity. So, um, you know, share of voice is something that we also look at and equally... Um, a much more accessible metric that's really interesting, I think, to Cub members is your share of search. So a new kid on the block now is looking at the percentage of um, share of search that you enjoy versus your competitors and category. And we should definitely do this for Cub. You know, really interesting exercise, and it can be accessed through Google Trends. So, you know, it's a great way of just gauging where you're at, and that allows you to then look at, do we need to throttle up a bit more? Are we doing fine or actually are we starting to level out and, you know, concerningly even decline? So mental availability is really key. Are you shouting loud enough in categories, sort of the second thing? And then the final thing, which links into my neuroscience piece, is the quality of attention that you enjoy. Now, you'll hear it till the cows come home that, um, and this is really what I did an experiment on, um, we have less attention these days. We don't. 
You know, if you if you really want to delve into something and YouTube rabbit holes for conspiracy theories, whatever, a great example, you can spend hours, you can lose hours on that stuff. Really the key is we have a finite amount of, of sort of working memory and the level of distraction that we have these days is way higher because we're processing a lot more information. So historically we used to process about six newspaper pages worth of information a day. Today we process about six newspapers worth of information a day. And that's that's the challenge that we have. So when we think about our communications going out there, it's not just about eyeballs. And I think a lot of a lot of kind of cheaper vendors will just throw you a cheap price for lots of eyeballs. It's actually are people paying quality attention to your comms? And so the world's busier, people have less thing. Uh, less um, uh, attention, that means we need to create a kick-ass message that aligns, uh, what did you call it before? You called it cognitive alignment. Yeah, that's right. And and base that on um, uh, an attitude of of whoever the clients you're trying to get. Is that correct? So, So great message that aligns with their brain, uh, and supports a behavioural attitude that, that they have. And that's kind of what you do, yes? Yeah, 100%. I think it's it's really thinking about how we frame, how we use behaviour to frame our messaging to make it the most emotionally powerful. And, you know, there's, there's great studies on um, emotional campaigns are way more effective. Um, no surprise. You know, look at Harley. There's what co- would you call an emotional campaign, though? What does that mean? Um, it really It really means framing a product or service in a way that makes it either aspirational or it makes it close to your personal values um and it's you know it's it's often moving away from the function of what that what that does so i'll give you i'll give you a great example that um you know is is from something i worked on historically but it's quite a quite a nice example in this context so fever tree tonic tonic water um retails for about seven dollars for a you know, a pack versus Schweppes, who were the absolute market leader, which is three or four dollars. So, you know, that brand value has created fantastic pricing power for Fever Tree. And interestingly, they came to us at one of my old agencies in, in London. And, um, you know, the client actually had quite a strong insight around um, if you're going to pay, you know, hundred dollars for a bottle of gin and three quarters of your drink is mixer then your mixer better be bloody good. Otherwise, you're letting the gin down. And that that was a really interesting springboard. And, you know, we thought that was genius. So we didn't do what advertising agencies typically do, which is completely rewrite what the founders thought of. Um, we just said, look, let's just make that aspirational. You know, ultimately here we're about achieving an amazing experience with a gin and tonic. And this is about putting, you know, making sure that all of it is as premium as possible but there's an aspirational aspect to that. So the way that we framed that was mixed with the best because gin and tonics are often best shared with with friends. Um, Naturally, it's a mixer, so the line plays quite nicely to that. But then the three-quarters story became about making an investment in your moment of enjoyment that you could share with your mates. I know, by the way, it's Fever Tree. So, you know, fantastic brand success from um, a really relevant kind of you know a relevant kind of i guess launch to cup members because this was a fledgling company and they still have that brand framing to this day and that 
brought loads of new people to them. Uh, it's it's determined long term growth. And I literally looked and smiled the other day in Woolies at side by side with Schweppes. You know, this was the young contender. How how will we ever compete? And we're nearly double the price, and it's flying off the shelves. So that's a great example of an emotional positioning where you could just say it's a really nice tasting tonic water mixed with the best, put it up there with sort of spirits in terms of worth paying more for. Yeah, that's really cool. And, and when you said uh, moving away from the function itself or the product, that, that's like uh, something that you hear like uh, Steve Jobs always talk about. Don't talk about bits and bytes and mega gigs or whatever, whatever they're called. Yeah. Um, talk about um, thinking different and the creative ones and, and Nike campaigns. You know, they're never about the shoes. They're always about kind of celebrating uh, – great athletes and, and great athletics. Is there something to do – is there a reason these brands do that? Is because that, those are both very emotional uh, campaigns, no? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, that's that's a really it's, – it's a fascinating question. And, you know, the brain's, the brain's seen as almost like an iceberg. So the, the rational bit of our decision-making in terms of um, where am I going, you know um, – what price point am I choosing, et cetera, et cetera, is, is seen as kind of in the driving seat when actually it's not. Um, and, you know, if, if nine-tenths of an iceberg is below the water, that's our sort of subconscious, that's our subconscious processing. And it it f- basically informs a lot of the decisions that we'll, we'll make. And this this can go on anything. Like if you're interviewing someone, what we were talking about in terms of cognitive alignment, if you're interviewing someone, it's hypothesized that you make a decision within the first minute or so, and then you spend the rest of the interview rationalizing the decision you've made to yourself. And that can even influence the questions you ask because if you've decided you like someone and it's a thumbs up, then you can actually ask easier questions to kind of reinforce the fact that they're right. And so it's it's fascinating in that, um, you know, we are wired to make um, what's called – you know, system one decisions, which is, you know, um, all about subconscious decision making, which is actually hardwired into us to be to be made in a split second. And that's evolutionary. You know, a lot of that was came about because we couldn't, if something happened where we had to make a split second decision, if you actually go through that rational, rationally, it might be too late. You know, if we're harking back to saber-toothed tigers and so on, you just react. Yeah, if you have to second. think, oh, shit, do I use the spear or the knife? <laughs> exactly. Or the rock, sorry, you know, yeah. too long. Exactly, you know, exactly. Copping a saber-tooth through there. Or run away. Um, so um, so that's fascinating. And, and what I found when I did my neuroscience study, I expected because um, our wiring in our brain changes, the more we do something, you know, they, the classic adage of, um, neurons that fire together, wire together, become reinforced behaviors. I expected to kind of flip the lid on people's heads as they were reacting to communications and almost find a computer in there. So I was expecting a really, um, a really powerful change in what we were seeing from brainwaves in reaction to, to different, different um, channels of communication. Um, brains don't change like that at all. You know, it's, it's in evolutionary terms over the last 10,000 years, we might have seen a marginal change, but it's, it really is like incredibly slow. And I think it's really important when we're trying to make a connection with people through comms that we remember that we're still driven by a lot of primary desires, which is the promise of gain or the avoidance of pain. And actually we can use those 
um, really positively to to frame our message in the most in the most powerful way possible to ensure that what we're trying to say gets across powerfully. I actually just kind of got and understood behavioral science. <laughs> I really Good. did. I'll explain how I kind of got there. Actually, the story you said about the, um, you know, you make your decision when you're hiring someone, then you're just justifying it. That I, I finally understood why you're saying you've got to understand people's beliefs or values or an attitude towards something because they've already got that decision. You're not going to make them make a new decision. All you have to do is support the existing decision. For example, if I was going to relate it to Cup, there could be, we could assume our members and potential members already believe that by having the strongest possible business owners network or, or network of business owners, that they're going to be more likely to succeed and less likely to fail. And therefore, marketing that message of strength in strength together or, or whatever it is and communicating why Cub does that or is the best at that would that, – that's kind of what you're saying. Isn't yeah, it? So you're not, yeah, yeah, you're not trying to get them to remember something about Cub that's different. You're just kind of saying, hey, you already believe X and we can – we do that. Yeah, absolutely, uh, 100%. And I think the um, – I think what's what's great about that there's a there's a really powerful behavioral bias um, called the mirror exposure effect, and it it suggests that if if someone or something appears familiar to us, then we tend to like it more. And I th I think what's what's great about Cub, you know, with your core sessions and so on, is you're actually looking for commonalities in in either business challenges or behaviors or personality types, and. That's fantastic because it means people are going to lean in more. And I, and I think it's absolutely, you know, that's both the business opportunity and what makes Cub really special is that you're tapping into uh, sort of equities that are already there. And therefore, in a way, you know, that people will make a decision because it aligns cognitively with pre-existing beliefs or behaviours and then they'll rationalize that decision down the line. But really it's kind of, as I say, it's the subconscious system one thinking um, that is that is driving that. And then the rational bit on top just tries to catch up. And and the subconscious you're saying is typically um, a promise of gain or avoidance of loss. Yeah, Those absolutely. are kind of yeah. the two major. Yeah. Gains could be love or yeah. food or money or exactly whatever right. it is. Yeah, exactly right. And loss, it's just loss of something you have. Yeah, and, and fascinating as well um, that uh, loss aversion, as it's called, which again is, you know, another behavioral bias that we use, is more powerful than the promise of gain. So you I've know, actually heard that before. Yeah, so it's, you know, there's different ways, there's different ways of, of looking at, at things like that. Now for... Um, you know, and it's interesting to see this in, in play with things like um, COVID vaccination campaigns. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we were chatting about it earlier. I think everyone's at the mindset now of we've just, we're just going to learn to live with it. And I, and I hope that kind of optimistic frame takes us well into this year in terms of opportunity, in terms of opening back up. Um, and I think, you know, the, a recent campaign from the government went a bit more into let's do this, let's do this so we can do this, so we can do that, and actually saw it as a, a means to enable kind of greater freedoms again. And that was a really interesting choice because behavioural science pure might say hit them with loss aversion. So if you don't get vaccinated, you're not going to be able to go to a restaurant, you're not going to be able to see friends and family, 
what's fascinating. They definitely did that though. Oh, yeah, they did. Yeah. But what was fascinating was you felt a change in public mood where they just had enough of it, you know. So I had a belly full of lockdowns and in order to change behaviour, they were psychologically smart enough to recognise that and offer a bit of carrot versus stick. So they switched, you're saying. So at first yeah. it was, hey, which is basically me. Yeah, I needed to get vaccinated. I'm not scared of COVID or the vaccination. I chose the one that was going to let me work and eat and go to restaurants and have a social life. Yeah. So they got me with the fear of loss. But then obviously yeah, what you're saying is they realized, okay, well, let's uh, switch from loss to gain now. We've hit them with enough, enough loss. Yeah, let's, uh, let's Let's throw the carrot. Yeah. And, and that's what they did. Very yeah. clever. And I read once in a book. Uh, I can't remember what book, but it was talking about the fear of uh, loss. Losing something you have specifically yeah. is far worse. Uh, humans are more scared of that than potentially gaining something that they don't. And uh, really clever uh, in this book, uh, they said that's why, you know, when you go clothes shopping, you know, go to design a store or whatever, you know, I really like this. Oh, try it on. Try it on because you 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 put it on. It looks good. All of a sudden, you've got a fear of losing it, as opposed to the opportunity to gain it. And so your odds of purchasing it skyrocket. It happens to me all the time. They, I'm the easiest person to sell to in the world, I reckon, because they just put it on me. I'm like, yeah, fuck, let's do it. And then I walk out. I'm like, I literally do not need that at all. I, in fact, I probably already have something extremely yeah. similar. You know, it's it's. It's it's that um, it, like they, they obviously advertisers like yourself and, and people who are accustomed to this type of stuff uh, know how to use it and and they're even using it on, on on fronts like that. So it's really like it's just so important as um, as um, a business owner or a marketing person, really anyone. It doesn't even if you're not in business to understand how the brain works. Just those basic functions, the 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 Fear of loss, for example, being greater than the uh, want of gain. But the fact that those two things are both there and they're both functioning or even understanding your brain in the fact that I already think this, therefore I'm going to try and justify this. You, know, you see it all the time. You see it like in politics. I don't want to get into politics, but like you'll see it like someone who follows this party and this is what they stand for. If you say, hey, but look, you know, your guy did this, this, and this. That's against what you stand for. They come up with justifications like, oh, yeah, but that didn't matter. You know, like it, it's not the same. It doesn't count. It, it, it's, that's, that's what it is, isn't it? Because they're already made in their mind, this is it. I'm going to find justifications to agree to that. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. Like clothes shopping is a, is a, um, is a fascinating uh, kind of perfect storm of behavioral influence. So they're – it's it's not just the trying trying on is really interesting, right? So so they used to be in in back in the day. I'm talking a long time ago when people actually read physical newspapers and magazines and things. There was a classic thing where they they used to run competitions to win a Jaguar, right? And they do they do pretty well, but then they did one thing which, to your point, made it like phenomenal. They started gluing the uh, physical key to the page of the magazine, and as they said, if you enter this key, one of these keys will start the car. And just that one thing put results phenomenally through the roof in terms of entry. And so the try it on in a shop is is really important. Um, and then they're also playing with, um, you know, what's called cross-modal stimulation. So they will have a certain scent to evoke certain 
mindsets, which again is incredibly powerful and talking to an, a, a real sort of primal part of the brain in terms of this feel. It feels nice in here. It feels opulent. I feel opulent. I'll buy a leather jacket. Um, so that's one part. The other bit is music. So music in a retail environment can influence um, sales by up to 60%. So a really smart retailer is thinking about all these different cross-sensory um, levers to put you in a sort of a high purchase state, which is kind of like, I feel good. I feel excited. I'm going to, I'm going to share that large yes by buying a new wardrobe that I don't really want. Yeah. yeah. And, and even getting back to like what you said and, and, and nailing you on your belief, it could be even a belief of yourself. I feel special. Therefore I'm going shopping at a special shop and the special shop looks special and smells special and the service is special. Therefore I should buy the clothes from this shop because that would reinforce the fact that I'm special. Yeah, absolutely. The other, the other one that um, I think works incredibly well is, is um, hair care. So, you know, things like a little, little glass of champagne in there, you know, can make all the difference. Um, way back when, when I, um, when I sort of proposed, I was getting a, I think I was getting an eternity band for my, for my wife and Tiffany's, they give you free verve, you know, just little things. And also they offer you your rings. Do you want those cleaned while you're waiting? You know, and it's all those little cues around making you feel special that perhaps gets you over the fact that you're probably paying way over the odds for essentially a turquoise box. Yeah. You know? yeah. But when we talk about brand distinctive, The gods, you feel special when you walk out and you've got the, you got the baby blue, the, yeah, the turquoise yeah, the, bag. The duck egg. You know, they've, they've, they've actually trademarked their, their color, which I think is one of the few brands that got away with it. Wow. And amazing that, you know, it's so distinctive. You could show that color to pretty much anyone in the world and they'd know it's different. Yeah. And, and it's weird that they know because it's, it's, it's like even people that aren't into, um, jewelry, like they wouldn't particularly know all the big jewelry companies. They would know, even if they didn't know it was Tiffany's, they'd be like, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's a, a ring or, you know, it's, yeah. they, they, they kind of identify it somehow. Yeah. And okay. So that begs the big question, which is because we, now we understand, or at least I understand the concept of people think a support what they think. So they buy you. How do you choose your brand attitude or, or your common belief or whatever you'd want to call it common belief? I, I, I like what, what you called it an attitude before, but how do you choose that? Or how do you identify what yours is for your business? Yeah. So, so typically that's a really good question. I think the, um, I normally look at three different lenses. So, you know, we're calling the three C's and we'll look at what's going on in culture. Um, we'll look at, you know, what is the sort of category of behavior that we're talking to and then what is it specifically about your company that can sort of be a bit of a Venn diagram into those two other things. So, you know, ordinarily we'll go through a diagnosis process with any business to find out what is that one special thing about you. But most importantly, back to my earlier point, what exists within culture or within the category of behavior that we're trying to instill um, that can help our cause. So, what do you mean by category of behavior? So, What's a category? So, of for, for example, uh, that could be motorbikes. So, it might be we look at a, a peer group within motorbikes, for example, or it could be a specific kind of behavior that we're trying to instill. So, for New South Wales government, we got um, the, the opportunity to encourage uh, employment for people with disability, which was a, which was amazing and. You know, that was that was a fascinating one in terms of the intent was there, 
But when you spoke to, you know, when you actually looked at the organization, you know, tens of thousands of employees, different clusters from transport to, um, you know, service New South Wales to you name it. And interestingly, um, you know, back to sort of innate biases in behavior, people would say, oh, well, I try my best. I've really, I've really tried my best to kind of employ people with disability and I do my best for them. And as soon as I heard the word them, I had a problem with that because I was, you know, I said the challenge that we've got here is that able-bodied people are actually seeing um, people with disability as disabled people. So it's almost I'm doing good by trying to be inclusive. And I said, that's a problem. That's a problem that we need to um, pull apart. And, and what was fascinating, uh, talking to one of the managers at Service uh, New South Wales, she actually came out with this really powerful statement, which is, you know, we've got a person that with support needs on our team. And actually, when they do well, it elevates everyone in the team because the, the challenges that they're facing and overcoming are greater than most people that don't have a disability. Now, um, inclusion elevates everyone, for me, was the light bulb moment where it's actually we need to reframe this as it's not able-bodied people and disabled people. It's actually there are people, some of whom happen to have disabilities. And going up to culture, we looked at our challenge, I guess, in terms of category was people with disability. In the company, there was an attitude that we needed to dismantle um, that to some extent was unconscious. You don't get me wrong. There's lots of very good people in, working in government. Um, but to some extent was... I don't know about that. No. Unconscious <laughs> bias at regional level. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, and so we, we, had to, we had to tackle that and we looked out to culture and said in every other um, realm of inclusivity, same-sex marriage, you name it, Australia has been right on the forefront of saying, yes, we believe in inclusivity. So we said culturally it's the thing. We are actually existing in the age of inclusivity. And that's what we called our campaign, which is if you believe in this, if you think it's right that we um, say yes to um, gay marriage and everything else, um, if you think gender equality is right on, which of course it should be, um, then jobs for people with disability is just another one of those areas that we say yes to and we get right behind. So and, you, and so we made it a movement, not, not just a poster on a wall. We actually made it a movement where if you weren't on board with it, you were behind the times. And that was actually really powerful for us in that context. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting because that's kind of different. You still aligned it with, um, so you found a way to align it to an existing to existing beliefs by bucketing those beliefs into one category and saying, if you're a person that's modern and believes in um, um, equality or whatever, whatever, all the things you said, then you also must believe in this. Yeah. Otherwise, absolutely. you're not one of those people. Yeah, absolutely. And so that people, oh shit, you know, better. That it, that, that, yep, that's us. Yeah. Isn't that amazing how human beings work? Like, but what, what's cool is you didn't change their mind. You found a way to align that certain behaviour to um, a category of uh, 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 a category of, of um, beliefs that they share that, that that fit within that bucket. I said that weird. I don't know if listeners, gonna, <laughs> but yeah, you kind of yeah, get what I mean. Yeah. Absolutely, no, absolutely. Yeah, and I. You know, that's and really that's, impressive. That's also a really it, – it's interesting being – I saw a, I saw something the other day that talked about ad execs in terms of trustworthiness and I think where, you know, we can be 
I think we're one above politicians where, where, you know, it's not going well for us. It's ironic given that we're in, we're in sort of marketing and advertising. Um, reputationally, that can be, it can be really challenged because people do see us as kind of mustache stroking, you know, behind glass doors, trying to try and manipulate people. But that's actually, it can be used for good. And, and where I get like really pumped about what we're able to achieve is when we can look at, um, you know, uh, cause related communications, um, people with disabilities. One, we also work with Race Foundation, which is about youth mentoring. Um, and that's fantastically close to our heart where we can use our skill set to change behavior for good. Um, it can equally go with weight loss exercise, you name it. So, or COVID jabs. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's, I think that's amazing. I think the other thing that's really important for members, get the behavior right. Then also think about how you approach, um, comms investment. So advertising should always be seen as this is the fuel in your aircraft. This is what gets off the runway. This is what maintains your altitude in terms of commercial growth. And, you know, for me particularly, it's looking at things like share of voice and quality of attention. That is absolutely vital. And that's more the sort of the media side of our business, but it's absolutely vital um, to smaller businesses, making sure you're investing in shouting loud enough in category. Um, it's not good enough to just come up with a great piece of creative. You've got to give it a stage to sing upon. What do you mean by that? I, I mean that um, I think often it can be a challenge uh, in, in a startup that it's, it's, it's advertising perceived as a cost, but it's actually an investment in getting your message out there and gaining momentum. And I think the, um, there's two things to it. One, make sure your spend is, is big enough relative to your competition. Otherwise, you'll get drowned out. And then secondly, um, let's just get a few checks and balances on the quality of attention that you're getting. It's very, it's very easy, particularly in the early days, to go what's cheapest, what gets us seen most. Um, if you are in, you know, purely in programmatic display advertising, you might get scrolled past, um, you know, and, and it's really thinking about what is the kind, what's the idea of what we're trying to do? Where's the right kind of audience for that? And what's the quality of attention we're going to get? And, and just to give you a, a recent example, we recently did something on TikTok and um, it was- I can that, imagine you dancing. <laughs> it was a small, I'll show you later. But it was a smaller, it was a smaller audience and- um, you know, it was an interesting debate with the client around with TikTok, smaller audience, are we concerned about that? You know, what are the results going to be like? But actually the quality of uh, click-through was way higher because people were more engaged because the piece of creative we came up with really fitted, was fun, you know, um, sort of fun, engaging and fitted the platform really well. So the actual click-through rate was way higher than it had previously and suddenly we've got more investment because the comms worked so, you know, it's really thinking about that. Um, it, we have to balance kind of effectiveness and efficiency, but it's really thinking about what's the right balance for your business and are you getting the right advice? Anyone will take money off you to go click, 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 eyeballs, eyeballs, eyeballs. We know, and I know specifically because I go out and dabble in this stuff with neuroscience, behavioral science, share of voice analysis, share of search analysis, that a key factor to communication success is creative, share of voice, quality of attention. And if you're not getting advice on those three things, 
then people aren't doing the best for you and your business in terms of return on investment. I agree. Just to get back to the um, um, coming up with your understanding your belief. So you mentioned uh, look at your uh, look at culture at the moment. So at the moment, I mean, it's pretty easy to look at culture. It's pretty much all they feed us at this point in time. So you kind of know what the attitude towards everything is. Um, and actually, now that you've said that, it's probably interesting that this is why all the businesses align to whatever's culturally trending. Because <laughs> they probably all sit down and they're like, okay, what's the culture? And the culture is this. People find this trendy. Let's 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 align ourselves with that because people are that's what people believe. I'm assuming that's how they do it. Okay, we're aligned with culture. Mad. We know what culture believes. That's what we believe too. Um, our category of <laughs> – sound a little bit yeah, <laughs> ingenuine by saying that, but I'm sure businesses do that. Yeah, I'm sure most business owners these days are in line anyway. So they're all doing good things. So um, now we're going to look at our category. I still don't know what that means. You mentioned a bike and a thing, so I want more clarity around yeah. what do you mean by category? Is it category? Is it category? Is it industry? Is it product? Is it demographics? What do, what do you mean by category? Well, it typically, it typically means it can mean sector or it can mean a specific class of products. So, you know, if we are – so say I was talking about a juice category, that okay. means, you know, things like um, nudie juice, it means like, you know, and other brands that sit in that specific category. So Cub could be like the leadership community category or the members club category. Yeah, private private members club private is members probably, club. probably what we'd look at. Yeah, so I think um, – but it's really, it's really interesting and this is where the sort of the wider perspectives become valuable. Some of the segment, a lot of the segmentation we apply in marketing is nonsense. So sometimes, you know, we need to chunk things down to make it manageable when we're thinking about it. But when I'm talking about a, um, you know, a drink, for example, or say someone's hungry in a servo, they could go in, they could buy a sandwich or they could buy a bottle of oak, for example. Now, in marketing terms, with Oak, we would be looking at a competitive category in kind of protein drinks, milkshakes, that kind of thing, or even like Dare. We might look at coffee, you know, the sort of chilled coffees and things like that. That's quite a false distinction because if you're hungry, you could go in and buy a sandwich or a drink. So we, we apply certain distinctions to certain categories to give us – a reasonable way to frame it from yeah. a sort of strategic point so of view. The category is kind of like things that fill your belly from belly from the service station. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of that you can have while you drive. Yeah. So I think I think we we look at it. We look at things from a category point of view because it's helpful to us to define our competitive set, um, and it's really deciding who, who else is in there. Now, interestingly, with Cub, um, you know, you guys are innovating from a physical space to the virtual space with the Cub app as well. So it's, you know, that's a very interesting dynamic around what's the kind of content, what's the kind of conversations that you want to create in a virtual space um, and which one will dominate. I mean, it's very interesting and, you know, I applaud you for um, diversifying into the, into the app also because I think that's a very future-facing sort of mentality where you're moving beyond... You know, the clubhouse is fantastic. I, you know, personally would always want that there as well. But it's also then you've got this option to interact as well through a completely different platform. Yeah, it, it's definitely the future for us, that I can guarantee. You know what my favourite thing you put on your prep sheet was? You described Cub as a, a, a family of inspiration. <laughs> <Is that? laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it, it is. And I think, that's, I think that's the wonderful thing, you know, back to that sense of it feels familiar and therefore you lean in more. 
you know, and I think that's where that's where the alchemy happens, both for brands, businesses, and for clubs. Um, it's really around finding those really valuable connections that take you to the next level. And so you look at the current culture, you identify your category, and then you look at your company. And when you look at your company, you said, you've, what's special about your company? So how can you, how can you think about that? How, how do you think about that? So if you were to look at a company, Carbo or any other, how do you kind of see what's special about this place? I think, I think what's fascinating is sometimes what founders think is special. What founders think is special and what actually is are two different things. And um, a great element of behaviorally framing a challenge. And we, you know, we've got an approach to this that we call brand faming where you look at what the blockers are, you look at what the enablers are, and then you come up with comparisons. That have, and we work through this with Cub, you know, in terms of um, defining what we need to overcome. Now, a good agency will actually not tell you what you want to hear, they'll tell you what you need to hear. And going through that process in a way that ladders up, you've got to come up with something that's true to the, it's a brand truth, so it's true to the company or brand, but it actually addresses any potential barriers to the behavior you want, we want, you know? So it's, it's really around, it's really around thinking what are the blockers that we've got? What enablers might we have um, in culture or in, in category? So what, what have we got in our locker that could help our cause? Um, and then what's true to the company? And if you find something that's true to the company and really overcomes the barrier to people choosing you, that's when you create alchemy. And that's, that's what you focus on. That becomes your belief that you then create uh, your creative from and that's what you push out into your marketing and uh, uh, th- that's what you get your audience to align with you with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, I think the, um, the key thing and when the magic happens is when you hear something unexpected. So I often have moments, um, you know, when we're working on brands where you suddenly have kind of a eureka moment where you, you, have the, you have the business challenge in your mind and someone either says something and we, we, you know, a big part of our process is exactly like Cub, meet the people, find out what fires them up, what's in, you know, what, was, what inspired them to create the business that actually can become a message that's really eloquent to, to a, a, an attitude across audiences. So I think, I think for us it's around get the stakeholders in a room. Sometimes you can really kind of, knock the edges off things that might be misaligned in the business. So it's quite a good um, group hug anyway. And then I think just find that one thing that, that is, is really a powerful um, summation of what the brand stands for and that can completely transform your fortunes. And that can work for, as we talked about, tonic water. It can work for really meaningful and significant behavioural change around things like um, inclusivity. Um, and I think... You know, it's it's brilliant. Nothing makes me prouder than when we create mental availability for a brand like Mix for the, Mix for the Best, and then that translates into unbelievable pricing power. So they're doing what they do, but actually their tonic water is selling for twice as much, and people are more than happy to pay for it because the product performs, mm. so performs. And I think I think that's the other bit. You know, no one feels good in the middle of this process if the product or service doesn't deliver on that promise. 
And that's what we've got to be true to as we... I read something somewhere as well that was something like, yeah, you can do all the branding you want, great marketing, but what real when branding happens is when the product delivers or is used. It's in the use of the product. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's um, you know, it's, it's really interesting from the point of view. Uh, it's, it's hard not to... You always play Steve Jobs bingo because he always comes up. And Apple's a great example of a, a brand with serious pricing power. I think they're a... What are they a triple trillion business now? Most, so, valuable, yeah, just, most valuable business yeah, on earth. They've, they've done pretty well, but I think it was fascinating that um, Steve always relegated the tech. And this back to that thing about the one thing to talk about is not necessarily what you think the one thing is. Actually, what he talked about was the user experience and empowering creativity. So this is for the crazy ones, you know, and think different um, was about an attitude, and it was about the key thing he wanted from his engineers was user experience. And pretty much anyone with with Apple laptops or phones just say, it just works. It works how I want. It works intuitively. It works beautifully. The form factor is gorgeous, you know, in terms of the, the engineering. Um, but it's actually about the user experience that's the point of difference on Apple. And that's why, you know, it's kind of, there's a classic thing on um I think on Futurama, which there's a meme about shut up and take my money. And so for so many years, when a new iPhone comes out, people don't ask how much it is. They're just like, right, there's a new one. I want it. That's it. I was telling my mum a story the other day because um, I'm reading the Steve Jobs book at the moment. I'm right at the end when he's getting cancer and all that. And um, and so by reading the book, I really had much better insight into what he was trying to do and and you know, what it, the products meant to him and, and what your experience meant to him. And I remember buying my first iPod, being at my grandparents' house, one of the f- very first iPods. Um, and I was at my grandparents' house. My cousin Rob was next to me, maybe 10 or like 12. I don't know, I'm young. Yeah. I opened the, the box. I still remember it kind of sliding out. And then I... Beautiful, the iPods sitting there so beautifully. I pick it up and I still remember to this day, the first thing I said was, this is sexy. <laughs> I was like <laughs> yeah, 10 ex- years old. No, exactly. But that's yeah, yeah. what he wanted. And you read the book yeah. and he's like, that. he actually saying he wanted to bring like sex to technology and make it beautiful. And and and, and I'm a kid at that point. I have no idea what Apple is as a brand. But I don't know who Steve Jobs yeah. is. I, the iPod's pretty cool. My parents, thank you for getting it for me. And I pull it out and I said exactly what he wanted me to say. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a, that's amazing. And that speaks to everything we've been talking about, which was um, I love that. Is that the Walter Isaacson autobiography? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah great read. And um, I, I actually think it's the best book ever written. I, I, my favorite book I've ever read. Yeah, no, it's 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 brilliant. I love I love it. And um, you know, specifically, he understood that um, and interesting again on behavior, the packaging with Apple is designed to be a gift to yourself. So everything about it as you open it feels like it's gift wrapped. And that is really interesting in terms of setting your expectation and the reveal then is beautiful. And, and you know, I, I remember, I think there's something in the, um, in the book around one of the early, one of the early Macintosh computers, Steve insisted that they chamfered off all the, um, screws inside the inside the computer and it was going to cost a lot more and people said why no one's going to see them and he said yeah but I'll know I'll know that it's perfect and that's that's the difference around kind of it's that um, obsession with kind of 
what are we doing for the audiences, not for ourselves? And 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 especially with our agency, that's what lionize is all about. You know, lionize means to treat someone else as though they're famous or make them feel like a celebrity. And that's what we want our client experience to be. Um, because like Apple, we start with what's the customer experience. And then if we can bring all the agency disciplines together and make it easy for people um, in the same way as, I mean, it's, it's a lofty ambition, but in the same way that Apple does, then that's just a better experience, better relationship, better outcomes. I did want to ask you, so just if members wanted to read more on this topic, sorry, I said shouldn't have said members, listeners. There's a lot more listeners than there are members. So we, listeners, if our listeners want to um, um, read more on these topics, uh, what, what books would you recommend? I know before you mentioned something Richard Dala and Daniel some last name I didn't write down. Daniel Kahneman. Ka- Kahneman. Do they have books or, or yeah, what books I mean, would you recommend? I, do you know what? I think I think um, as a start point, I'll happily um, you know put my email address on the in the in the sort of the credits by all means, um, and I'll happily make a sort of a reading list recommendation to anyone that that wants to delve into this uh, more deeply. In terms of a summation for like what's relevant to business outcomes. I've written quite a number of articles on this stuff, so it can. It's taken me seven years to get studied on this. So, um, if anyone wants a start point in terms of my articles, I can share some links with you that just talk through talk through this in particular. Um, there's a an article on Ad News called ESOV and Beyond that I wrote, which speaks to creative effectiveness, share of voice in terms of what you should invest in, and then quality of attention. So. If you want to read that as a start point, uh, um, I'll really happily make recommendations thereafter in terms of books. Okay, what we'll do is give Laura all uh, that information, the book list and the links. And to our amazing listeners, as always, you can get all those links, those books, more information uh, on Dan and Lionize, and you can even be able to get in contact with Dan by going to cub.club forward slash podcast. You will find it all there. If you want to catch up with us on social media, it's at Club United Business on Instagram. Uh, There's equally as kick-ass stuff there too. Dan, thank you so much for a brilliant conversation. Thanks. It was great. I hope you enjoyed the show.